The scripture today is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, and it can be found on page 795 of the Pew Bible. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, excuse me, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and not Greeks, non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just it is, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, the children may go to their classes now. Notice Haley's had a new baby this morning. <laughs> For those of y'all that are like, what? It's Amos, David, and uh, Bria's little guy. <clears throat> Let's turn to the Lord and ask him to be with us as we look at his word. Father, your word has many things in it that are so, so deeply encouraging, and we thank you for that. <clears throat> your word also has things in it that we have a hard time getting our minds around, and that will be coming in the next weeks. Today, your word speaks to us about Paul's ambition to eagerly speak the gospel. Father, that is my prayer for us as a church, that we would be like the Roman believers, that our faith would be heard around the world because it is a sincere and biblical faith. And so would you come now, be with me, be with us, as we seek to worship you 
as we look at your word and understand your word, and I pray understand you, understand ourselves and the world that we live in in a greater way. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we did an introduction to Romans, and I also covered the first seven verses, one through seven. And, uh, and in that time, I said that Paul's letter to the Roman believers was perhaps the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world. It is a theological letter, and it covers God's plan of salvation for man and man's sin problem. And it does it more clearly than any other writing in the history of the world. I also noted in verse 7, I believe it is, that Paul is writing, he says, to the Roman Christians. He's writing this entire thing, explaining the gospel, but he's actually writing it to believers. Often we believe the gospel is for those that need to be saved, those that are outside of Christ. But what Paul is saying is not, not so fast. The gospel is how we live the Christian life. And so the letter to Romans is written with that in mind. One mark of spiritual maturity as a Christian is that you know how to take the gospel and to apply it to everyday situations in your life. And I have found that many, if not most, Christians don't understand how the gospel applies to parenting or to anger or to all of these little circumstances that crop up day to day, week to week, month to month. The theme of Romans, we said, and this you must see. Matter of fact, I would ask you if, you're, if you would to turn with me to Romans 1, look at verses 16 and 17. Because in a sense, Paul is saying up front, here is the message of Romans. Now, he's going to unpack it in several ways. But in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he says, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then here's the nugget. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, I say that, and it's easy for me to assume that you go, oh, of course, I get that. But maybe there's some of us that have read enough and listened enough. We know exactly what Paul's saying when he says that. But For those of us that are sitting here that are like, I'm not 100% sure I know what that means. Let's talk about it for just a moment. This idea that the righteous shall live by faith. One of the reasons Paul is saying this right here in chapter 1 is because when you get to verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to do something that if you look at it and think about it, it's kind of uncanny. He is going to take the next three chapters, 
And he's going to talk about man's sin problem. Your sin problem and my sin problem. For three chapters, he's just going to talk and write about our sin. Now, you may hear that and think, yikes, that doesn't sound like a pleasant uh, letter. Well, it's not only not a pleasant letter, it may not be a pleasant sermon because there's going to be a lot of them over the next three weeks dealing with our sin problem as I unpack, hopefully, what Paul was writing about and why he would write it. Why would Paul go to such lengths to write three chapters at the beginning of Romans about our sin problem? At best, it's an uncomfortable topic. Well, Paul is going to take sin and he's going to analyze it and dissect it and pull it apart and stretch it and push it together in an in-depth way. Much like if you're watching the local news, the medical doctors are working around the clock right now on this coronavirus. Because why? It's deadly. It's killing people all over the world. And so what these doctors are having to do is they're having to get down into the molecular level of what is making this virus take the lives of people, and they're studying it, and they're pulling it apart, and as they begin to really understand the virus, they can come up with a solution. You see, man's sin problem is far, far worse than the coronavirus, and Paul knows the only way people will actually take and ask God himself for the cure is if they deeply and profoundly understand how deadly this sin problem that we have is. And so it's really, really important, not just for the person that does not know God, but for the person that does know God to understand the depths of the sin problem that we all have even after we've become a Christian. And so Paul writes extensively, we must come to grips and understand in a very full way what this sin problem is. Sin is a horrible cancer on mankind, and Paul wants us to see it and understand it. God's cure for the sin problem is his son, Jesus Christ. That's in essence the gospel. Because we have this sin problem, we're separated from our Lord, and God is wanting to reunite us in a relationship with himself, and the only way to do that is through the death and resurrection of a life that was lived in our place as a substitute that we couldn't live ourselves because Christ was sinless. We need a sinless Substitute. That's why the lambs in the Old Testament were, were spotless, the ones that were sacrificed in, in view of what Christ would do. It's a lot like this. Imagine this. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because the jest of Romans is this idea that the righteous shall live by faith. And I want you to make sure, I want to make sure on the front end that you understand what that means. And is essentially, it is the gospel. 
And so, just this last week, I don't know if y'all heard about it, but at the Waffle House and at the Chevron, right here, that you could see if you walked out our front door, there was an attempted carjacking. And I think there were some shots fired, maybe even somebody hurt. Uh, I don't think that they got away with the car. But let's just say, for the sake of the illustration, that you were the one that was trying to steal a car at the Waffle House. And in the process of trying to steal the car, you were caught red-handed. There's no, uh, no excuse. Everybody saw you. It's clear that you did it. And now you're standing in a courtroom, and the state judge looks at you, and he says this. You're guilty. They've already done, gone through the trial. The witnesses, everybody's already said everything. And the judge says, you're guilty. Your sentence will be 10 years in the state prison, or you'll pay the, the state court $10 million. You're sitting there thinking, <laughs> I definitely don't want to spend 10 years in a jail. And if I had $10 million, I wouldn't have been out robbing cars. But what if in that moment of just agony and your stomach is down in your feet somewhere, someone walks in the room, in this case, we'll just say hypothetically it's me, and I come in the room and I say, Judge, the sentence is either 10 years in jail or $10 million, correct? And the judge says, that's correct. And I say, well, I have $10 million. I would like to pay it on their behalf, and they can go free. Well, the judge would be just if he allowed that to happen because the penalty is 10 years in jail or $10 million. So I'm meeting his requirement of paying $10 million. You could have never done it. You didn't have the money to do it. But in, let's say, hypothetically, in this case, I did. Well... You've got a choice to make at that point, don't you? You can receive that $10 million gift that I'm going to give on your behalf, or you could say, no, I don't want his $10 million. I want to do 10 years in jail. Now, that's kind of silly, isn't it? Nobody would choose, well, I'll just do 10 years in jail because I don't want his $10 million. Essentially, that's the gospel. We are all guilty before God, but... Jesus pays the $10 million, and he can make you, and here's the 10-cent word, justified before the state. He can make you justified before the Father. The word justification is that you can be justified before a holy God because of the, your sin, you are not justified but because of the work of Christ on your behalf, you can become justified if you receive his gift. Essentially, that's the gospel. Now, let's switch gears. Look with me at Romans 1, 8 through 12. Romans 1, 8 through 12. <clears throat> I know that Ruan has already read this, but let's read it again for the sake of our study. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, but yours, both yours and mine. <clears throat> so you notice right there in the text, it says, Paul is thankful to God um, for the Romans, their faith. Now, Paul did not plant the Roman church. Remember, Paul has not even been to Rome yet. So this isn't a church that he went and planted himself, but their faith is being known throughout the world. And that's an interesting point. And Paul is giving thanks for that, that their faith is being known throughout the world. My question in my study was, what was the known world at the time that Paul says, your faith is being known throughout the world? Because if we said that today, well, of course, that's the whole globe. I mean, there's people everywhere. But what this meant in Paul's time was basically there were about 300 million best estimates of people on earth. There are more than 300 million people in the U.S. today. Most of them were seated around the Mediterranean. And so Paul is saying all of the people, I mean, for the most part, it's a generalization, but your, your faith is known all around the world. These 300 million people have a sense that the Romans have found faith in Christ. And he's rejoicing in that. And it's a deep faith. And so Paul is rejoicing in their deep faith. But keep in mind, do you remember what's happening right now in Rome? Paul is writing this letter roughly 54, 55 A.D. How about that? How about that? Let's stop right there. And I want to pray and thank God that Bob has been able to join us. Father, we give you thanks for our brother, bringing him from strokes to your church. I pray that his spirit would be lifted. I pray that you'd continue to heal his body. We give him back to you. We trust you with him. We're grateful for our brother. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, I'll try to bring you up to speed. But we're talking about Romans, <laughs> we're in chapter 1, and uh, we're in verses, uh, what is it, y'all, 8 through 17. And uh, I'm basically, I'm saying, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in basically 55 AD. Do you know who took over as the emperor in Rome in 54 AD? Nero. And if you know a little bit about history, you know that Nero was not a good man. And he would burn Christians on the stake and hang their heads around the city after he chopped them off. These Christians were living in the lion's den, so to speak. So when Paul's writing them, he's saying, your faith is amazing. Your faith in the midst of this persecution is astonishing. 
And I give thanks for you. And I give thanks for the faith that is being made known around the world. You see, some churches are famous like, like this one for their pastor. <laughs> some churches are famous for their architecture. Some churches are famous for their stained glass windows. Others are famous for their size and their wealth. Paul is saying to these Roman believers, you're famous for your faith. That's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. God help us if we're ever at Chattahoochee famous because of a pastor or architecture or stained glass or our size or our wealth. I pray, and I got on my knees when I studied this this week, and I said, Lord, let Chattahoochee be famous for their faith. For their faith. All right, look with me at Romans 1, 9 through 10. Nine and, verses 9 and 10. It says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And then I'm going to go and read verse 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. When Paul says there, it's kind of a tricky wording in the ESV. It says, whom I serve with my spirit. Whom I serve with my spirit. If you look at the NIV, it says, and I think this is closer to the right way to think about it. Whom I serve with my whole heart. I serve this God with my whole heart. And I think that seems to be the right idea. Paul doesn't just say he prays for them, but notice what he says. And think about this. You know, I know that you can, as a pastor, you can talk about three things and you'll make people stop making eye contact with you. You know what the three things are? We're going to talk about one of them right now. And we're going to talk about another one in just a minute. The third one we're not going to get to today. But you'll stop looking at me if I start preaching on evangelism because everybody's like, oh. Or tithing, oh. Or prayer. It's like, oh. none of those three do most people feel like, I'm knocking it out of the park on all of those. You know, most of us are humbled by that. But Paul, right here in our text, he's saying, I pray for you without ceasing. Now, you got to ask yourself the question if you're a thinking person, can he really pray without ceasing? I mean, aren't there times where Paul's on a ship and the ship is wrecked or he's getting flogged or he's getting stoned? Is he praying during those times? And my belief about this is Paul is saying, when I pray and I pray often, I pray for you. And I, these are things that I pray. I pray that I'll be able to come to you that I'll be able to impart some spiritual gift to you. He probably had something in mind. And here's the kicker, and this one's interesting to me. He says, I pray that we'll be able 
to mutually encourage one another. To mutually encourage one another. Amos, you're getting a lot of the attention here. I'm jealous. (laughs) Paul, the Apostle Paul, is saying, if I come to you, you can encourage me. He's the Apostle Paul. He's saying he gets encouraged by being around other believers. Wow. I don't think, and this is why I rejoice with our brother Bob being back with us. I don't think it is the same to sit at home and watch on television or stream a worship service. I don't think you can get the same benefit as when you physically come into God's church with God's people and interact with them. I don't think it's the same. Now, I realize there are times where our health is so bad that it's impossible. We just can't. So I'm not talking about that. But I pray for you that as long as you physically can drag your body into a service, you would do that for your benefit and, as Paul says, for our benefit. You see, we're the body of Christ. When the hand isn't here, we miss the hand. When the arm isn't here, we miss the arm. We, as believers in Christ, are the body. When parts of us are not here, it's not good. We need each other. We need each other. Now, look with me at Romans 1, 14 and 16. 14 through 16. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he says, famous verse, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll stop there. The Greeks and the barbarians... And the wise and the foolish is the way he says it in the text. I think that what he's saying and what my study has told me this week is that basically the Greeks are representing the wise and the barbarians are representing the foolish. So when he says the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish, it's just another way of saying the wise and the foolish, okay? The Greeks of that day included many people and many places, and they were educated, and, uh, and they were trained in Greek culture. They were highly sophisticated, and they looked upon uh, others as being probably a little bit less than themselves. The Greek language was thought to be a language of the gods. Greek philosophy was thought to be a little less than divine. The term barbarian that Paul uses, on the other hand, was frequently used to designate those that are not 
And the word is Hellenized. Some of us are going to go, I know what that means. But if you don't know what that means, it means steeped in Greek learning. If you weren't Hellenized, you weren't steeped in Greek learning. So this is what Paul's trying to communicate. He's saying, I am under obligation to the educated and wealthy and to the uneducated and under-resourced because all people are created in the image of God. All have a soul that reflects his glory. And I am under obligation as an apostle Paul to take the gospel to both regardless. That's essentially what Paul is saying. So, the big question, why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? If he's saying, I'm not ashamed, you have to assume that there's the possibility that he could have been ashamed, or he wouldn't need to say that. And not only that, but for our sake, are we, are we able to say like Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Tim Keller, a pastor up in New York City, deals with skeptics all the time. He's, writ- he's written a great book called The Reason for God. It's an interesting title. And he's writing in New York to all these skeptics. And in his book, he gives four reasons why we might be ashamed of the gospel. I hope that I have those four on a slide for you. The very first one is this. Reasons why we might be ashamed. The gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, is really an insult. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. This offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm not as bad as them? You know what that is? If you just cut that to the chase. That's just sin. The fact of the matter is, you're probably worse. We all have a horrible sin problem. And so the gospel, when we go to share, like, let me, let me make this clear. Some people think when I'm saying we share that we should proclaim the gospel to people. What the gospel is to a lot of church folks is to tell them you're a Christian. Or to ask them to come to church. That's not the gospel. That, that won't save anybody. The gospel is the essential message that God created them for a relationship with himself. But because of their sin, they're separated from him for all eternity. And that the gospel says, the Bible says, that we are actually rebels against a holy God. And that the only way to be made right is through a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're not sharing that message, which you have to admit is offensive. If you're telling people you're a sinner and you need a Savior, that in and of itself is offensive. So the second one, the gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. 
It tells us that we are so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. This offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. I bet if we went around today after church and just did a poll in these neighborhoods, and the poll was, do you believe that man is basically good or basically bad? I would be willing to put money on it. The percentage of people would say, man is basically good. And so the gospel is running contradictory to that. The gospel is saying, no, you've got a real problem, and it's called sin. Now, a lot of people would just laugh at that. You, re- you still really believe in sin. You're, you're just archaic, you know, to believe that. All right, the third thing Tim Keller says, why the gospel is offensive. The gospel, by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, therefore insists that no good person, follow this, <clears throat> no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through Jesus. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can be can find God in his own way. We don't like losing our autonomy. <clears throat> this is one of them, though, that I want to touch on. Do you really believe there is no good person on earth? Jesus said that, by the way. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. There is nobody not one that is good. That's what the Bible teaches. That's offensive. If we teach the gospel, the gospel in its very self is offensive. The fourth one, the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus suffering and serving. Our salvation was accomplished through suffering and serving, not the way man would have written the story, conquering and destroying. And that following him means, as a Christian, you're going to have to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. Typically, what I think is true about American Christianity is everybody has their their pie. You got family, you got work. You know, if you divide a a round circle into a pie, you've got your social network, you've got all these different elements, your financial life. And what we do is one piece of the pie is church and religion. But you know what the Bible says? That's hogwash. Hogwash. That Jesus is the center and he is every part of all of those things. He blows that paradigm out of the water. He's not a part of the pie. He is the pie for the Christian. He's everything. He's their entire life. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. 
Galatians 2.20. And so, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this. Even those, four, even those four things and other things offend people. I'm not ashamed. Matter of fact, I am eager to share the gospel. I have felt its power in my life. I know it is the only hope for salvation for others. And so I want to share this with as many people as I possibly can. Some of you have heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, British Baptist pastor. He said this, if my hearers are not converted, I have wasted my time. I have lost the exercise of brain and heart. I feel as if I've lost my hope and lost my life unless I find for my Lord some of his blood-bought ones. You see, the opposite of ashamed of the gospel is not proud to be a Christian. It's eager to share the gospel. The opposite of ashamed is not proud to be a Christian, but eager to share the gospel. You know how you can tell real fruit versus, sorry about this, Haley and Bria, I think they're on the flower committee. This is, this is fake. You know how I know this is fake? It's been sitting here for weeks and weeks and it never reproduces. Never reproduces. It's pretty, but it's fake. Christians can be the same way. They can be pretty, nice on the outside, but they never reproduce. And that's a surefire way of knowing. Are they really his? Because if you're really his, you're going to be eager to take the gospel. And if you take the gospel, people are going to respond. Not everybody. A lot of people are going to tell you you're number one, but they'll use a different finger. But if you really know the Lord and you are eager to share the gospel, you will multiply your life. People will come to faith in the Lord Jesus when his gospel goes forth. That's a fact. Are we eager to share the gospel? Or do our actions say just the opposite? Honestly, my actions say I'm ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to offend somebody with the gospel. The Apostle Paul helps us in this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Listen what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us. He says, because we are convinced, we are convinced we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So you get these two words, convinced. Once you get convinced of something, then you will be compelled. But if you're not convinced, you will not be compelled. And so when I even ask myself the question, Clint, why don't you proclaim the gospel more? I think the answer that I get back through the Spirit is saying to me, you're not as convinced as you should be, Clint. 
that all of this is the greatest reality. It's the greatest reality. You see, to get convinced, I think you've got to soak your soul and your mind and your heart in the Word of God. I mean, soak in His truth weekly, daily, moment by moment. Our souls need to be marinated in the truth of God's word and in his spirit. Because what's really happening is our souls are being marinated in sitcoms and sporting events and other things that are good gifts but are out of whack. They're out of place. The majority of our time ought to be spent soaking and marinating in the Word of God and the truths of God. But we really, in the words of Robert Moody this week in our Bible study, said there was a pastor who went into a home of a Buddhist and they had Buddha in the front and center of the living room. And the pastor went home and he said, wow, that's really idol worship. And he got to his house and he realized, my TV is Buddha. It's sitting right in the middle of my living room. It's the most important thing to me. It's what I do when I walk in the door every day. Now, am I saying, am I saying, which would be accused of a lot of Baptist pastors, TV's bad, Hollywood's bad, movies are bad. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, are you soaking Are you marinating? Are you making much of Christ in your time alone? Because when you do that, fullness will have a propensity to overflow. In other words, if I keep filling this thing and keep filling this thing and keep filling this thing, eventually it's going to spill out. The reason we are not spilling out It's because we've got night after night after night after night after day after day after day of primetime drivel of triviality in our lives. We're more marinating in the world than we are in God. And because of that, we're not eager to share the gospel. Because if we were so full of God and his truth, we would do it. You know, This sounds silly, but I have discovered that Clawson pickles are awesome. (laughs) The the thing about Clawson pickles, this particular pickle, there may be something about the marinade, but the biggest thing that I have noticed is the whole process from when they put it in the marinade all the way through it's chilled. So you can't buy it on a regular aisle. You got to get it in the refrigerated area. And so I was telling Peggy how much I liked them, and she came home with these other pickles. And I tried that pickle, and I said, that is not going to (laughs) do. It's got to be that Clawson pickle that's chilled. You see, there's something for a Christian about putting yourself in an environment where... The others just won't do. It just won't do. And the environment that a Christian needs is not to be chilled from beginning to end. The environment that a Christian needs just just to get started is a daily time with the Lord where we're falling on our face 
Have you ever, have you ever done that? Have you ever truly gotten down, and I'm not going to do it in this, uh, and laid on your face and said, God, I need you more than I need whatever it is. God, I need you more than I need all of these things. Right now, I've got something in my life. I've told my wife and a few key people, I think I like this more than I should. It's not a bad thing. It's an okay thing, especially if it's done with moderation like most everything else. But I have said, for my own soul's sake, I'm not going to do that till July 1st. From January 1 to July 1st, I'm going to fast. I'm going to sustain. I'm not going to do it. The only reason I'm doing it really is because I want to say to the Lord, God, I want you more than I want that. I want you more than I want anything. You see, when that becomes the tone of your relationship with God, when you fall on your face and you confess your sins, that's the other big one. That's the other huge one, is are we confessing our sins? The typical way that we do life is we justify our sins. It is so rare to meet a Christian who will come up to another believer and say, you know, the other day I said this to you, I apologize, that was sin. When I hear that, I just rejoice. It's like, that's biblical Christianity. That's the real thing. And if you want to raise kids to love God, you better be real. You better be real. Living in biblical community with other believers. I'm talking about the environment that creates a cloth and pickle. I'm talking about the environment that creates a, a Christian who has a passion for God. And because they have a passion for God, they are eager. They're not ashamed. They're eager to share their faith. Will you, by faith, pick up your Bible daily and seek to know his word? Will you, by faith, get on your knees, parents, and beg God for the salvation of your children and your grandchildren? You see, we need to be saturated saturated. But here's the thing is as we go through life, little things break in, you know, and they, they steal away and we begin to think more worldly. I don't know. And I don't, I, this is not, I'm not, uh, for example, I was at Greg Ashworth's house. We watched the Super Bowl together. The Super Bowl halftime show came on and I turned the channel because of what it was. And I'm not saying if you watch that, you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, are you creating an environment where the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you Christians feels comfortable? Because he is very sensitive. And if you want to grow in Christ, you must be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
That's what I'm trying to say. So, Psalm 1611 says this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full of joy. Will you make much of Christ by being eager to take the gospel? Not your testimony, not asking people to come to church, but really articulating the claims of Christ. And I said at the beginning of this study, we need to know the gospel cold. Every follower of Christ should know the gospel cold so that when God presents an opportunity, we're able to share that with that person 